Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, so today's, today's a little bit of a transition day for us. Uh, here's where we've been. Here's where we've been. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, we talked about this picture of Jesus. And, and this very much uh, chapter was very much an introduction, an introduction of who John was, that he was writing to seven churches, but also this reminder that Jesus walks among his churches. And so if you remember, there's this vision of Jesus and he's walking among the seven lampstands. Jesus is very much with us. And I would argue that these chapters really go together and frame up somewhat of an introduction as a whole. And, and what we're going to talk about today is how do we look at Revelation and see how these pieces fit together before we go into chapter 6. Chapter 2 and 3 were the seven churches, and so we really just started seeing some of the things from an earthly perspective that they were experiencing, some of the things that they needed to overcome, and uh, and very much this is probably one of the most famous two chapters in the book because it's probably the easiest to understand for us, because it's very earthbound uh, in its nature. Last week we talked about Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and it's this image of God being on the throne. And we said it's kind of an echo of that chariot throne uh, from the Old Testament in Ezekiel and Daniel, this chariot throne that can go wherever it needs to go because God can always be present with us. Even when uh, God's people were in exile, God's throne could go there. It could be there. And now that, that John is in exile and his people are in exile, uh, this throne is also able to be with them as well. So similar to Jesus walking amongst the lampstands, God is with us. He is still in control. He's still on his throne. And even in that, we have this picture of Jesus, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the Messiah coming. And he is going to open the lamb. You're right. He is going to open up this scroll. And that's where we're going in chapter six is the scroll is going to start to get opened. And last week we argued that this scroll seems to be one of two things. One of those is kind of God's last will and testament that says when the Messiah dies, here's kind of the last things that are going to happen and it's going to be unveiled. Um, either that or it is some sense of prophecy that says um, this is both the good and bad of what's about to happen. Both of those things really overlap and become the same thing. Um, but what I want to argue is that this becomes kind of an all cohesive piece, all introduction is that Jesus is with us, the churches are struggling, but God is on his throne. And, and so now we have framed up that piece as introduction. And now we get into chapter 6 where we start to see these seven seals and this scroll unveiled. And it's going to get dicey. We're going to be seeing four horses of the apocalypse. And we're going to be like, what's going on here? And there's really two ways to read the rest of the book of Revelation. And this is what I want to talk about today. And, and so if I were to turn this around, here's a question for us. Do we read the book of Revelation in a linear, chronological way? So what I mean by that is this. John introduces the seven churches. And then in history, there's going to be seven seals that are going to be unveiled. And then in history, there's going to be seven trumpets. And then in history, there's going to be seven bowls. Uh, this is one way to interpret or read the book of Revelation, is to read it in a linear structure, as if each of these things are chronological, back to back, and they lead out into the future. And oftentimes what happens is if you read it this way, uh, you end up looking at some of these things. Let me grab my marker. 
And you end up asking, when is this going to happen or when did it happen? And then you look out even further and you go, what are some of the signs that this is going to happen? This is one of the ways that, that people understand this book. Here's another problem with this, is that in the midst of these, it looks like Jesus comes and goes. It looks like the world is like almost at an end, but then it isn't. Mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, and all kinds of things are happening. You're like, I thought this was the end of the world. And so you have lots of question marks about this. Does Jesus come once? Does he come twice? What happens? And what I want to argue is that this isn't actually the way that the book of Revelation uh, should be read. That instead, what we should be noticing is that these are multiple visions that John has had. And these visions overlap. These visions are of the same time frame, but from a different perspective. That this is more, and here's perhaps the word that I would give, um, and, and this isn't saying that this isn't a literal book, but that it's structured more poetically than what we're used to in the Western world. We're used to history being written out linear, but this isn't concerned with being a historical book. It's an apocalyptic book. And it's not something we're familiar with. We noticed uh, week one, apocalyptic literature was really popular 200 years before Jesus, 200 years after Jesus, that 400-year gap. And so what I want to argue, and and I'm going to hope to kind of help clarify this throughout the rest of the day today, okay? What I'm going to argue is that these four sevens, sets of sevens, actually overlap, but actually continue to get louder, and so it's kind of like the vision, if you remember uh, the dream um, that Joseph tells of Pharaoh, that he interprets of Pharaoh, where there's the seven calves, uh, the seven cows, and the seven ears of corn. And it's the same dream, but it's told twice and using different pictures. It's similar to that, to where some of these things actually look the same, and they're just told in a different perspective. And so we have seven churches. These seven churches, somewhat, uh, they are historical churches, historically seven churches, but they also, as the number seven, we said, represent all churches. And, and now we're going to get into these seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. So what I want to do in your handout is notice this first word, recapitulation. Uh, recapitulation is a musical term. And what recapitulation uh, means as a, as a term in music is when a theme in a sonata or a musical piece repeats itself. And I'm not at all an expert on musical uh, pieces. Um, but as a theme repeats itself, and all of a sudden you know, oh, this is what's going on. The best I could explain for you is the Imperial March in Star Wars, right? Dun, 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 dun. My seven-year-old son goes around the house singing that. And when that musical piece plays... And you hear it again in the movie, even in the later movies, you know, oh, something about Darth Vader is about ready to happen. Recapitulation in music is the repeating of a similar theme, sometimes changed for its own emphasis, but it does kind of echo something that's already happened. What I want to argue is that recapitulation is this cycling of these visions that all of them come to the end if I was to draw this line here, each of these visions brings us to the end of this creation. And then we start over. And the music line starts over. And we hear the same music line again, and it brings us to the end again. Every time with its own emphasis of what it's trying to say. So, for instance, in the seven seals, one of the things we're going to suggest is that the seven seals is really going to be encouraging those who are believers that even though bad things happen in this world, you're going to be okay. Now, as we come to the seven trumpets, 
it's actually going to be a warning, seven warnings for those who aren't believers that these plagues are this call to repent, this call to repent, this call to repent. And if you don't repent and you don't listen to God's witnesses, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And the same thing with the seven bulls is kind of this. And now everything is going to come to an end. And it is this, again, emphasis of plagues and these warning signs. And so I I want us to, again, this is very much introductory. We're going to get into the text and notice some of the elements of this a little bit later. But recapitulation is this dynamic. How many of you have had like crazy dreams that have repeated themselves before? Um, I've had I've had a couple repeating dreams. I've mentioned a few of those to you. One of them is surrounded by tornadoes. Uh, one of them is being in battle or war at some point, and um, one of them is falling, which all of us have that dream, of course. Um, and and you know this about dreams is that dreams are not chronological. Um, dreams and visions very much can kind of go and do what they want to do. Again, my argument would be all of these are that same period of time that say here's what life is like now in the world, but one day it's going to be over. Here's what life is like now in the world, but one day it's going to be over. So here's another element we want to introduce you to. So recapitulation is the structure that says these things repeat. So they play, they come to an end, and then it comes back and rewinds. And then they play, they come to an end. And ultimately, at the end of the book, chapters 21 to 22, ultimately, these all lead up to little echoes of that big chapter. So every time we come to an end... There's going to be little pieces that hint at some of the things we find in chapters 21 and 22, like trees of life and those types of things. So we're going to notice some of those things as we go out. So I'm kind of helping you understand what are you looking for in the landscape of the text in the next few weeks. So the second principle there on the first page that I want us to understand as we dive into the next few weeks is that of intensification. Uh, This is something that gets more intense, something that gets louder, something that is emphasized. And one of the things you'll notice as things are destroyed in the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls is the number or the amount of things that get destroyed gets louder. It gets, it gets more intense. So just like in music or just like in a movie, it draws, it draws it to a conclusion by growing in its intensity. So we have a quarter, 25%, a third, 33%, and then the seven bulls, all, everything. And so we kind of have, again, this intensification that says, no, this is going to bring it to an end. Number three, and again, we're going to go back over these, um, an interlude. Um, an interlude is a pause in the action. So this is like a montage in a movie. You know, there's like big action and all of a sudden they have a montage and people are running through flower beds and, you know, to music. And, and it's kind of a pause in the action and you're like, okay, I can get a drink now. Um, there are in each of these seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, right after number six, there seems to be a pause in the action, a break. In fact, sometimes it's a chapter or two chapters long. In the case of the seven bowls, it seems to be only one verse long. But the pause, the interlude, seems to be the emphasis. So watch for this in the landscape. Here's what I mean. Seven seals. Chapter six, we're going to see all of these things start to unfold. War and famine and pestilence and plague. And even on the spiritual side of things, spiritual darkness and hardship. But then chapter seven pauses and goes... But God's people are going to be sealed. They're going to be safe. No matter what happens, they're going to be okay. And then it comes back and the seventh seal is unsealed. And it seems to be the end. 
The same thing happens with the seven trumpets. We get to the end of number six, and there's this interlude of chapters 10 and 11, where we see these two witnesses whose role, um, it seems to be, is to represent God before people who reject him. Now, I'm arguing that these two witnesses are the church. They are us. And that these two witnesses represent how are we supposed to behave in a world that is in opposition to God and in rebellion to him. We are supposed to continue to witness no matter what it costs us, even if it costs us our lives. Because after all, as Jesus was risen from the dead, we can be risen as well. That's what the churches needed to hear. And then the seventh trumpet blows. Same thing with the seventh bowl. Other than the fact that the interlude is very short, it just says, be ready and stay dressed. And then it goes on and has the seventh bowl. So I want us to notice um, some of this parallelism in the chart. Um, this chart is actually on your third page. Um, this third page will help us out putting these things back to back. One of the things that you can notice is that a number of these uh, concepts um, in these sets of seven, a number of them come from the plagues of Egypt. So I want us to think about the plagues of Egypt. What, what was the dynamic of the plagues of Egypt? Why, why did God send the ten plagues to Egypt? What was the purpose of them? God's people. Okay. He didn't release God's people. Okay. What else? Any other thoughts? Great. Absolutely. They each, they each, in case you didn't hear, they each represented an Egyptian God. All of the plagues had connection to one of the Egyptian gods. And it was God saying, I'm on the throne. Remember where we just came from, chapter 4 and 5. I'm on the throne. And so these plagues that, that are shown... Um, are an echo, are an echo of what God did to uh, to Egypt and to Pharaoh, who had his heart hardened and would not repent. Okay. Um, other purpose of the, of the plagues. Um, some of the purpose was to show God to show God's people that He was going to be the one to free them, but also judge those who had been in captivity over them. And so there's going to be a question that gets asked. In fact, start to watch the questions in Revelation. How long until you judge, O Lord? How long will you let this keep going? That's going to be a great question for us next week. That's what we're going to ask. Have you ever asked that question before about the newspaper headlines? How, like, how long are you going to let this go? And, and there's going to be this answer. Why did this happen? That's, that's the question. And so there's going to be an answer that says, um, here's, here's the reason why God waits. And at some point, there's a promise that God will judge. There's going to be another question that asks this. It's going to ask this question. Who can stand in the day of wrath? Who can stand in the day of wrath? And there's going to be an answer. These are the people who are able to stand in the day of wrath. So these, these plagues, these, seven, these three sets of seven, really do give us, and, and in my mind, a picture of everything that's going on now, but also what's going on for these seven churches. It's a, it's a picture of what is going on in this broken, cursed, sin-filled creation until God brings it to a conclusion. And each of the sets is a recapitulation, a, a new picture, a new perspective of what that looks like from a different angle. And so as you look through, one of the things you'll notice as you come down uh, to number six is, again, that gray box in both of those. Um, those represent the interludes and where those chapters are, so you can be looking at those. But here's where I want it to kind of go next. Notice number seven. Number seven, at the end, as each of these seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, as the number seven one is either unsealed, as the seven trumpet blows, or as the seventh bowl is poured out, there does seem to be an indication of it being the end of this creation as we know it. 
And some hints of that, for instance, the silence, the prayers of the saints, how long? And there's the silence, and there's the peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Um, Under the seven trumpets, um, this statement is said, The kingdoms of the world and heaven unite, the temple is opened, and it says, He has begun to reign, and judgment has come. And there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. And then at the end of the seven bowls, it is finished, or it is done. And then there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake like no other. And what I want to argue is that these three sets, again, bring us to the end every time, give us a picture that, yes, God's going to bring everything to a conclusion, but it doesn't quite spell it out. It's going to hold it till the very end when we get to chapter 21 and 22. Um, there's, there's going to be, um, you know, for us, there's going to be reminders of this as we come in and we dialogue it, uh, dialogue through it as we study through the next few chapters. So um, I will try to remind you, hey, this is, this is that pause. This is that interlude we are talking about. Or again, as we come to number seven, remember, look at the clues here that say this is the very end. And now we're going to rewind and look at it from a new perspective. Uh, what, I, what I want to say is that um, what I want you to understand, I'm going to reinforce, is that this is not just um, some, some picture for the seven churches that's so foreign from us or some picture of the future. This is a picture of something that happens over and over again. History repeats itself. And so this is what happens when sin is in the world and the churches are living in the world, but God is still on his throne. Um, questions about that thus far? I'm sure there are still, I mean, we're not familiar with the landscape yet. But that's, okay, there, we're getting ready to open the seven seals. All right, if you could turn to this page here, it's uh, the seven sections of Revelation. So it's actually your, the back of your front page. And, and hopefully this will help map out for you what I see uh, or want to suggest is a possible outline. You, you recognize this, like there's, there's a number of different ways to outline anything. Um, but this seems to be one of the clearest in my mind ways to outline and understand the book of Revelation. And so for us to understand chapters 1 through 5 to be introductory and the nature of the seven churches as well as the nature of the God, of, of the God who interacts with the seven churches, uh, those are chapters 1 through 5. Chapters 6 through 8, the seven seals. Chapters 8 through 11, rewinds, the seven trumpets. And then we have this narrative that's tucked in before we get to the seven bowls. And it, you're right. And so kind of like in a movie where all of a sudden it picks up on this like side plot, um, this dragon and beast introduces um, almost in the same way that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5, God on the throne, Jesus. And remember we saw the Holy Spirit because of the seven eyes, seven spirits, seven lamps. We had the Trinity in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 12 through 14 introduce us to a parody of the Trinity. And it's the dragon and the two beasts. And as you see these three characters described, they're going to be described in contrast or actually in comparison to, they, they, they're wannabes. They're going to be described in c- comparison to the three characters from chapter 4 and 5. They want to look like the Lamb. They want to look like God on the throne. They want to have power and control. Um, but they don't. It's only handed to them. And so the dragon and the two beasts are going to be introduced. And it's a little bit of its own like narrative that's going to play out throughout the rest of this book. In fact, I would call it the narrative. This is that God is a God who is going to bring this conflict that we are in the midst of to a conclusion. So then that's why we have the seven bowls that says everything, all. It kind of intensifies one final time. And then chapter 17 and 19 is going to compare the people who bought into the prostitute and the people who are the bride. It's going to talk about two different people. 
But then chapter 19, the final section, is going to judge these three characters, the dragon and the two beasts, in reverse order to how they were introduced. So we had dragon and beast one and beast two. Now beast two is going to be destroyed, then beast one, and then the dragon. And so it's this reversal that says, as they were introduced, so God is ultimately going to judge them and destroy them. And we have this culmination of the entire story, is that this was all about one epic conflict, but God is going to bring it to a conclusion, and he is ultimately going to judge. One of the things you'll notice, there's not actually a war in Revelation. Like, how, how do you fight against God? I mean, do you remember the Old Testament stories like Jericho or like some of the armies that come up against God? Like they come up against God and God's like, I'm just going to throw them into confusion and they'll fight each other and they'll run away. There, there are enemies in Revelation, spiritual enemies that seem to gather against God, but they never actually get to fight. Like the whole battle of Armageddon thing, it's, you can't fight God. And so this, this final conclusion is this reality that God has been in control this entire time is that the, the enemies of God were allowed to have some destructive forces and, and really serve in a lot of ways sometimes as plagues in this world, but God has been in control. Um, and that's where we're going to finally get into kind of this ultimate picture of um, heaven and earth colliding. And I want to say this too, it's kind of a precursor. Sometimes when we talk about heaven, we picture heaven as this spiritual, not spiritual, spirit, other place um, where God is. And that would be accurate. In fact, here's what I'd say as a definition of heaven. Heaven is wherever God is. Now, and, and you're right. In Revelation 20 and 21, or 21 and 22, the reality is, is that we don't exist in a spiritual existence forever. It's a new creation. And so when I say that this creation is going to be destroyed these three different times over and over again, it's going to talk about the fact that this creation is going to be uh, destroyed or come to an end. The reality is, it's not that just we escape and go to some spiritual other realm, although that would be true if we were to die today, we go to be a paradise. But the ultimate, the ultimate goal of creation is to be restored. Because when God created this world, he said it is good. In fact, he said it seven times or six times, it's created. It's good. It's good. It's good. So in the seven days of creation, God created physical existence to be a good thing. The culmination of the book of Revelation is that creation is restored. Everything that we're going to see broken in the next several weeks is going to have a conclusion where it's going to be fixed and put back in order. It's going to be made new. And that, is, that, that conclusion is part of the reason why the next few chapters are so difficult, even for God, is because it's broken and we ask the question, because of the broken creation, how long until you fix this? How long till it's made right again? Um, so I have a feeling that some of you have lots of questions at this point, okay? Uh, and, and I don't by any means think that it's super clear. Um, what, what thoughts, what questions do you have thus far? Uh, I know when John wrote this, what time period? When? Yeah. When did he write this? Oh, that's... I know when. Oh, you do? Okay. It's between 90 AD and 96 AD. That's about right. You're reading it. Good job. Uh, it's at the beginning of the, the relation in my book. Okay, good deal. So if we're, if we're going to read it this way, one of the things that we you know, have to struggle with a little bit is kind of getting some of that Western chronological timeline out of our mind that says, I'm going to use this book to tell the future. 
but instead says, I'm going to use this book to be able to understand some of the things that are going on now, but also how to overcome and endure through them. Um, So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and kind of start looking ahead. Um, We have a few minutes um, to be able to do this today. Um, I want to turn to Revelation chapter 6. Good deal. All right, Revelation chapter 6. It says this, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked to behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow. Now I want to I suggest this to you. Remember how we said everything from Revelation seems to have some sort of an echo connection to the Old Testament. This is Zechariah 6. And there's connections to Zechariah 6. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But, but notice this, this horse. It's white. If you're in the Roman world, a white horse was oftentimes a horse of victory or a horse of the king. Uh, hence in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes riding back in on a white horse. Conquest, you're right. So he has this white, white horse and he has this bow and he has a crown. And he came and he's conquering and he came to conquer. So I want you to picture this first one. This first horse, the rider has a bow. How do you fight with a bow, right? You're further back. You're not up close, hand-to-hand combat. But he's wearing a crown. And in this case, um, this horse seems to look like, in our world, what nations do with one another. Is that they are bent on conquest and war and fighting. And, you know, right now we even like talk about like the fact that North Korea is launching missiles. And like that is just the story that has always played out. And so these horses look like things that not only do the seven churches were experiencing, like Rome and some of the other nations that were conquering one another, but it also looks like things that we see today. Notice in the second one. When they opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. And there came another horse, bright red. And oftentimes we see red as a symbol of war as well. As is bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a sword. So notice the weapon. First one, first one a bow, fight from a distance. Second one a sword, and now I'm going to come up and it's going to be hand-to-hand battle and it's going to be bloody. And so the first one actually leads to the second one. The first, the first fact that we all love conquest and are bent on conquest leads to this interaction with one another of war. And then we come to this third horse. He opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the wine. And this black horse seems to be symbolic of oftentimes what followed war and follows war is famine or inflation. So he has a pair of scales in his hands. And basically, a denarius was a day's wage, a day's wage for the average worker in the ancient world. Some of you have heard that before. But all you can buy with a day's wage now is enough food to get by for the day. That's how inflation has gone up. That's how much famine is taking place in that, that world where they live. Because of war, because of conquest, it causes famine. And it causes those who don't have much to struggle to get by. And this is the world we live in. This is the world that we have lived in. This is the world that sin brings us. And he opened the fourth seal, and I heard a voice from the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades follows after him. So almost two riders on this horse. And, and Death, we know, Hades um, is a name, a Greek name, for the abode of the dead. Now, originally, Sheol and Hades, Sheol's kind of a Hebrew word. Sheol and Hades are kind of just the place where anyone who dies goes. It's not necessarily, necessarily hell. 
um, but it's just the abode of the dead. But at the same time, once the, the early church starts framing up this idea of Jesus giving us promise and giving us hope, it kind of takes on more nuance of judgment or a waiting place for judgment. Before so, get, yeah, go ahead. Can I go back just a little bit? Yeah. Oh, great. That's a great question. So in conquest, in conquest, oil and wine um, t- took a long time to regrow. So to put together back the vines that would take, uh, you know, the trees to grow olives and the vines would take a long time. So conquest, uh, military conquest would harm the fields with salt fields, but oftentimes wouldn't harm those because they took so long to bring back. And so that's part of the dynamic. That was just part of the military strategy of overcoming a place. Does that make sense? Um, so again, though, the inflation is still there. Um, so with death and Hades, it's a great question. With death and Hades writing, they're given authority over the fourth of the earth. Notice there's our 25%. They're given authority. And notice this phrase, given authority. Uh, in Revelation, this is called a divine passive. What that means is, is God's still on the throne. Just kind of like Job in his story. Job was allowed... Uh, or Satan was allowed to bring some difficulty into Job's life, but it was only under God's authority. It was only allowed. And, and this is kind of just the echo again, that God is still on the throne, and he allows some of these things to happen while sin is in the world, but it, ultimately it's going to come to an end. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts of the earth. And even in this dynamic, um, there is a question that goes, how many Christians in this time frame were starting to be killed by uh, the beasts in some of the kind of Roman system? And if, if not at this time, especially later, that becomes a pretty big deal where Christians are led into the games, into the Colosseums, and killed by beasts. Um, that's exactly right. And the book of Mark, actually, Jesus, um, Jesus uh, and his temptations is, uh, book of Mark is the only one that mentions wild beasts. Uh, when Jesus has his temptations. And some of that possibly is because Mark is writing to Romans. And they have this, they have this reminder in front of them that even Jesus, when he's tempted, um, the angels attended to him. And so this, this beast can be an echo to some of those who are facing that. And so we have these, these four horses that ride out. And, and one of the things that we're going we're gonna to flesh out a little bit more as we come back to them next week is that, once again, not only is this a template for something that has happened in the past, but it's something that happens over and over again. And it'll happen over and over again until Jesus comes back and sets things right and says, it's done, it is finished. And so the fifth seal is opened, and under the altar, uh, the souls of those who had been slain, for, notice why they're slain, for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Jesus, chapter 1, is... Um, is, is talked about for the fact, the fact that he is, uh, or excuse me, John, is talk, talked about the fact that John is a witness and he is on exile in Patmos for the witness he is born for Jesus. The witness of Jesus in a world that is broken can cause you conflict. And that's part of the question. Are you okay with that? So they are under this altar in this temple. Now remember the temple in 70 AD was destroyed. There is no temple. So they're in the presence of God. And they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, in other words, God who is in control, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers, should be complete, who were killed um, as they themselves had been. And so notice what this says, is that 
we need to wait a little longer until the fullness of this number is complete. It's a little bit like what we find else place in the New Testament where you kind of ask the question about how long, why is God long in waiting, and God doesn't want anyone, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And, and Paul would say this, right? He said, which is better for me to go and be with God or to stay here and be with you all? I'd rather be with God, but for your sake, I'll stay here. And there's some of that dynamic that says there's still more to be done. There's still more people who are still to be saved. There's still more to be accomplished in the midst of this. Um, so as we come through this, I want to get to the end of this. The sixth seal, I looked, behold, there's a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. We'll come back to this. The full moon became like blood. The stars fell to the sky. Or the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit and is shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island is removed from its place. Question: Does that look like it's kind of at the end? It does look at the end, doesn't it? Um, in fact, when you start to see like great earthquakes and sun being black. Um, you're not really getting past end of the world imagery at that point. Um, the sky is rolled up and vanishes like a scroll. Every mountain is gone. And then notice in verse 15, I want you to count these categories. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone slave and free. So seven. Everyone. Uh, everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and on the mountains, calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day, this is an Old Testament phrase that talks about the day of judgment. The great day of their wrath has come. Here's the question, who can stand? So the reason we've kind of read through this opening set of seven seals, we'll come back a little bit to it next week, is because I want you to see that it comes to the, the place where it comes to an end. And, and very much is this picture of what is going on in our world all of the time. And this question, who can stand? The question who can stand, obviously, is who can stand are the people who have stood for Jesus and stood with Jesus, and he can cause them to stand. And that's what the interlude is going to be all about. In fact, what you're going to find in the next chapter is that, um, verse 7, four angels were standing. Well, as we turn the page in chapter 7, um, we're going to see that these are the people who are standing. It's chapter 7, verse uh, 9. I looked and behold a great multitude. No one could number from every nation, tribe, people, language. That number four. So all of creation. They're from all of creation. And they're standing before the throne and the Lamb. So the interlude becomes the question to the problem that life brings us. And the interlude tells us that God is going to seal everyone. In other words, he's going to mark everyone as being his people, and he will bring them into the promise, which is eternity with him in heaven, or new creation. Um, so that, that's kind of the dynamic, the outline. And I, I know, um, you know, Revelation, especially as we go through chapter 6 through chapter 15, we're going to have to come back to this and kind of frame that up a little bit again. Any thoughts, questions? We're going to wrap up a little bit early probably today. Any thoughts, any questions? All right. We're done a little bit early. Sorry about that for those of you who are waiting. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, we will be chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 next week. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.com dot com.